0: Hi friends and welcome. I'm glad you could join me. If you listen to the podcast episode called strengthening the mind through unexpected hardship, which was four or five episodes ago, you may remember toward the end, my guest and good buddy, Michael Dalbar talked about how much gratitude he felt for our military and I couldn't share his sentiment more. And then shortly after he said that, he hit me with a question that I'd never been asked, which was, what are the last three notes on your phone? meaning what were the last three things that I either updated or created new in the Notes app on my iPhone. So I clicked on my first note, and there were three very short stories about our military. And in an effort to save time, I only shared two of those stories. Today, I thought I would share the third story, since I have a special guest who is currently serving on active duty in the United States Marine Corps. So before I introduce him, I'm going to share that story from my notes. and Give me just a second. Okay, here we go. So, I hold on to stories like these because they serve as a reminder for me that, one, we owe these guys a debt of gratitude that we can never repay. Two, if you're ever standing in line to get a beer or at Starbucks, see to it that these these guys' money is no good. And three, freedom isn't free. Here's a story. Robert Whiting, an elderly American, flew to Paris. He was 83 years old. And when he got to customs, he was searching through his carry-on bag to find his passport. And it took him a, f- a few minutes to find it. Meanwhile, this hot shot young customs officer said to him, have you been to France before, monsieur? And the old man gave him a once over and said, the last time I was here, I didn't have to show it. So the customs officer said, this is impossible. Americans always must show their passport upon arrival in France. The elderly man locked eyes with the Frenchman and said quietly, when I came ashore at Omaha Beach on D-Day 1944 to help liberate this country, I couldn't find a single Frenchman to show my passport to. My guest today is David Perret. He's an active duty Marine who devotes his free time to teaching service members and veterans how to build wealth through real estate investing, also entrepreneurship and personal finance. And I'm honored to have him. David, welcome to the podcast, buddy. How are you?
1: Funny story. I like that.
0: (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad. I thought you might. I love it too, man. I keep it in my phone and look at it every once in a while.
1: Well, it's even better because I'm French, so I get to make fun of my people.
0: <laughs> oh, parade is French. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So you and I met only briefly a few months ago, um, but I, so I had to do some research on your background and I found that you were from a small town in Arkansas. Is that right?
1: Correct. I grew up in uh, Roland, Arkansas, which, for those familiar, it's uh, right outside Little Rock and kind of by Pinnacle Mountain State Park, which is probably the only thing anyone would know about that area. Did you ever
0: watch that HBO show, Banging in Little Rock? I did not. Should I? <laughs> you don't want to. It's sort okay. of, I think it was a Scared Straight. If you've ever heard of that show where they send young kids who were troubled into the prisons, mm. and pretty much scare them straight from, from leading a life of crime.
1: That's funny. There are some rough spots in Little Rock. I did not live in the rough spots. I lived out in the country. But
0: So another thing I learned about you is that your decision to go to the military stemmed from not knowing what you wanted to study. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So I didn't know what I wanted to study in school. I didn't necessarily want to continue in school. And I really didn't have money for school either. So uh, when I hear people Ranting and raving about student loan debt these days, I kind of laugh because I'm like, man, I don't know that I was intelligent enough to know that. But that was a huge reason for me joining the military was, well, I don't have money for college. And if I don't know what I want to study, it doesn't really make sense to do that. Like, why would I pay to learn to figure out what I want to do? I should figure it out first. So it always kind of makes me laugh because I'm like, man, thank God I dodged that bullet.
0: I had friends who didn't know what they wanted to study, but they went to get a general studies degree that they paid a lot of money for. And then some of them had to go to another three or four years of college once they figured out after paying four or four years of school uh, what they wanted to do.
1: So yeah, yeah you were I, smart, man. Yeah. And I got to scratch the adventure itch we were talking about before we recorded. That was the other big thing.
0: Yeah, because you got to travel the world, right? Yep. So I'm in Thailand now. Have you been to Thailand? I have. Bangkok?
1: Uh, yes, briefly uh, for just a little bit of fun. There are a lot of ladyboys in Bangkok. That's uh, yes, yes. I, I recall. Um, I don't. I don't have one of those crazy stories, but I have <laughs> plenty
0: of roommates who do.
1: <laughs> so, don't nice really need to get down that rabbit hole. But
0: <laughs> so I've got to get this out of the way since it's in the news now. The Kurds in Turkey and the troop withdrawal. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I don't really know that I'm at liberty to discuss that. Uh, it kind of kind of boils into the political sphere. And we're not allowed to discuss politics while in the military in a way that could potentially, in theory, people view it as it could be a representation of what the military's view is on it. So we are uh, advised to refrain from answering such topics.
0: Interesting, so is that part of your training? Like maybe week one, they tell you if anybody asks about gay marriage, you are not to comment?
1: Yeah. I mean, they, uh, it's very much, so the thing is, you know, it, and there's kind of like gray areas to it where you can say, uh, you know, like if I'm at a bar or whatever, and I'm, I'm Dave and you're Brad and whatever that theoretically, like it wouldn't be an issue, but the problem becomes like right now on the podcast, right. You introduced me as a Marine. So people would assume or could assume you know, whether correctly or not, that my opinion equals the Marine Corps opinion equals. So it's just not, It's just, yeah, they're like, just don't bring, don't, don't talk about anything. Don't ever go on record anywhere. I'm like, yep, all right. So, um, and I've seen some people get in trouble for that because, you know, political stuff is emotionally charged and uh, people like, especially you talk about the gay marriage one, when that was a thing, man, there were people left and right on both sides of the coin, just politically charged about it and running their mouth about things and getting themselves in trouble because they were essentially voicing the military's opinion, whether they intended it or not. And uh, it's just not a a place you want to be. But, you know, I'll tell you that that makes life so easy in the military in a way, because when you take the political angst out of life and everybody just ignores that piece and and discusses it from a logical point of view, as opposed to getting emotional over things, man, people get along so well. It's just crazy how easy people get along from all walks of life when you take and it's funny because you'll work in an office with someone for two years And never know their political views and then maybe your friends on facebook and you'll see them say something and you're like Man, we totally disagree on that, but we would never know it.
0: Yeah, they say not to discuss politics or Not to gamble with your friends. I've never had a problem doing either of those (laughs) But you can't control the other person and how much how emotionally involved they're going to get or how passionate they are about a particular subject, such as abortion or whatever. I had an interesting conversation on the podcast with a guy from Africa. He came to America for the first time in college. And so he and I had an in-depth discussion about racism. And it was really productive. And it helped me to realize that people don't have those sorts of conversations very often. And yeah, it's probably for the better. But maybe yeah. I should preface every podcast with, I don't speak for all married white males. Um, my opinions are my own.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah, I mean, nowadays it almost feels like you have to. It's funny, I lost a, <laughs> I lost a discussion with someone earlier this week and that was ultimately his uh, like ending debate was like, well, you're a privileged white guy, you don't understand. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, okay, well on that note, I'm gonna just bow out of this conversation. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's the wise thing to do. Like, yeah, we're going down a trail that's not worth going down.
0: You've been to Thailand. Is, are there any other cool places? Like, what stands out in your mind as the coolest place that you've gotten to visit as a result of being in the military? I imagine Ooh. Afghanistan is not at the top of that list.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was cool for a whole different reason, right? I mean, where else do you get to, like, spend seven months trying not to drive over bombs and shooting at things or getting shot at? Um, so it was, it was an adventure for sure. But... Man, that's such a good question. I've lived, I've got to go to some crazy places. So like, I got to spend a month in Kyrgyzstan. uh, Well, like 10, 10 days here, 20 days there. And a lot of people would never, that's somewhere no one would ever go. And ironically, we were there when they were going through kind of a civil war. So like, we're on this little compound getting ready to come back from Afghanistan. And we're not allowed to leave said compound because outside is like a civil war going on. And we'd like, man, we just left combat. This is kind of interesting spot to be. Um, I would say Tokyo might be my favorite, uh, location that I've got. So I say Tokyo, but Fuji, I got to spend a month and a half in Fuji and I absolutely loved, I never got to hike the mountain cause it was December and the mountains closed during that time. But like the culture in Japan, I love it. I just love Japanese culture, but living in Fuji and then getting to go to Tokyo, like, you know, the biggest city in the world and the, and the people are just so nice and genuine everywhere you go. I, I absolutely loved Japan. And I actually lived in Okinawa, Japan for two years. So I got to see a lot of Japan and I it was just great.
0: I second that. The only problem I had with Japan was it being so expensive. Other than that, it is so clean. And you're right, the people are so friendly. The food is great. When we were traveling from Tokyo to Bangkok, we got the most beautiful view of Mount Fuji. And I tried to snap a picture so that I could share it on Instagram, but the picture didn't come out well. But I didn't know Fuji was a, a city or a town. I just thought it was a mountain. So that's interesting.
1: It, well, I mean, it is a mountain, but the, the underlying area, they, they have a training area for the Marine Corps called, like it's literally called Fuji something training area. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just for training, but it's right at the base. So every morning you wake up and you watch the sunrise And you're like, ah, Mount Fuji, it's beautiful. And then you're like, now we're going to go do some crappy cold weather training. Mm. But it was a nice place to wake up. The other place I've done cold weather training was almost as beautiful, but much more miserable. So
0: when you were driving around bombs, as you said, in Afghanistan, do you think that that experience is some of the the best bonding that you ever did. And the reason I asked that question is because I've read where Londoners, after being bombed by the Nazis, you know, following Blitzkrieg, all that time that they spent hiding out in tunnels kind of sort of bonded them to their neighbors and distress like that often brings people together. And you can't replicate that after the fact. The same could be said about Katrina in New Orleans where people come together or or Hurricane Harvey in Houston. These tragedies have an upside, which is a lot of times the human element of it and how people come together really uplifts people. And sometimes they even say that they miss it. Do you miss your Afghanistan experience? Well, first of all, did you find that that sort of experience going through that with other guys that I'm sure you would consider brothers did that bring you closer together? And do you ever miss that, that sort of bonding?
1: And that's a, a very good set of questions that people don't generally ask. It's, they, they always seem to be more concerned about, it's funny because I have gotten the question, quote, do you, did you kill anyone? Which is like a total no-no question to ask service members. More than people have thought about asking what you just asked. Which is funny because that's just how people think, but your question is the one people should ask. And the answer is absolutely like 100%. Not only is that some of the best memories that I have in the military, and honestly, the reason I reenlisted was because I thought I was going to get to go back to Afghanistan. Because I mean, there is not ever been a greater sense of purpose in my life than while I was there. And you're like, holy crap, everything I do means something. And all I have on my plate is, don't die. Don't let a teammate die. Like, There's no drama, there's no bills, there's no outside stressors or outside communication or negative news or political BS. It's just, hey, this is our mission today and we need to make sure we all make it through. Um, And I will tell you that, yes, there is not some of the best relationships I have, but a vast majority of the best. And I mean, it's been nine and a half years now. Uh, and I still, we have a Facebook group that gets posted in almost daily. We still talk all the time. I'm still, I mean, we still do meetups. Like if anyone's in the same state, we all know where people live and it's like, Hey, I'm driving through your state. You got a place for me to crash. Let's hang out. Um, and I've been in a couple of those guys' weddings and, uh, it's just a phenomenal experience. And I I actually was just, I'm reading a book right now and they talked about the negative experience creating bonding. And one of the examples he used was hazing. He said like fraternities and sorority hazing. Well, the military's outlawed hazing. And there's a lot of good reasons for that, right? Like hazing is definitely not a, a great thing. But I will say that I think I can see that effect as far as the bond that I had with people when I was a young Marine, because there was a little bit of hazing. Uh, vice now. I like I I'm not saying we're not as close, but I definitely remember like I I have a I'm not gonna talk about this on the show. I don't think that would be uh, wise use of our time, but there's a very distinct memory of a time where I was just blatantly hazed. Like it was just a ridiculously like, Oh, come on. This isn't even like toting the line. This is stupid. <laughs> um, and honestly, that's one of my better, it actually happened at Fuji. And it's one of my better memories as far as like my little four man team coming together. Like we were so ready to kill each other at, you know, it just beat each other up to get through that. But then like the next day it's like, you couldn't separate us. Like we, there's this like chip on your shoulder almost like, yeah, well, we did this yesterday and you guys were sleeping or whatever, you know? And it's like, it almost like, you're almost like proud of like, well, guess what BS we did yesterday while you guys were just relaxing. And uh, it's a very strange thing, but it's totally true.
0: So I've got to ask, what is the book you're reading? It's called
1: The Like Switch, uh, L-I-K-E. And man, if you haven't read it, so I'm, I'm about two thirds of the way through it. I think it's usually I will buy a physical book if I liked the audiobook or felt like I didn't get all of it, get all out of it that I should have. This is probably the first audiobook that within the first two hours of listening, I was like, yep, I'm buying the hard copy. So it's written, it's kind of like uh, if you've ever read Never Split the Difference, kind of a similar concept where it's another FBI guy taking those practices into uh, life. But the whole book is about how to get people to like you with nonverbal cues so like how you should tilt your head what a raise of an eyebrow means what someone's pursing their lips means and how you could avoid what they're thinking and like negate it ahead of time and like the book starts off with the guy talking about how his job in the fbi was to convince uh spies for other nations to spy on that nation for the u.s and it talks about the first like story is how he convinced a soviet guy to spy on the soviets for the u.s And he did it. His first step was literally spend 30 days just strategically standing in the street where this guy walked to get coffee every morning. And it's like, yeah, just him seeing my face in random places every morning. And then when I finally did get closer and finally did break the ice and finally did talk to him, like there's this friendship code because he's seen me so much. I've been in proximity so much for so many times that in his head, even though I'm completely an enemy, now he's curious about who I am and he wants to know more and this, that, and the other. It's just a very interesting book on how you can use, talks about proximity, duration, uh, and some other pieces that I haven't really dug that far into the book yet on how to get people to like you just from being around. It's, it's a really cool book.
0: I, I will read it. What is, who is the author? Do you know? I will, like. I'll get you that while we're talking. Okay. And I'll put it in the show notes too for anyone else. I do have a lot of readers and I get asked for book recommendations quite a bit. Um, The book that I was thinking about was Tribe by Sebastian Younger. I I think he was in Afghanistan and he witnessed some of the bonding and wrote about different tribes and evolutionary psychology and that sort of thing. Jack
1: Schaefer? Jack Schaefer, yeah. Yeah. It says, An An Ex-FBI Agent's Guide to Influence, Attracting, and Winning People Over. And the guy who recommended it to me recommended it as, uh, he said, if you're going to raise private capital, this is the book you have to read. I was like, huh, interesting. I'll check it out. And I'm totally hooked. It's like my favorite book of the year so far.
0: We were both guests on Bigger Pockets. And shortly after my episode aired, Robert Greene, who's one of my favorite authors, was a guest. And one of the things that he talks about in his book on seduction is proximity. So I'm not surprised to hear you say that. People tend to, they begin to get a sense that it's fate that you keep running into someone. So yeah, that can be intentionally created. It's interesting. So do you have an Audible membership? Oh, absolutely. Best investment ever. Totally agree. It's like $14.95 a month. You get a free book with your membership. It's crazy. I have a link on my blog for anyone who's interested. And I think there's some kind of bonus for using that link. I, I put it up there six months ago and I don't remember what it is, but highly recommend Audible. Do you listen at 1x, 1.5x or 2x?
1: <laughs> 2.25. Are you serious? Ho- it's like chipmunk speed. It took me like six months to build up to that, but I can I can do it now. I realize that I don't need to hear 100% of a book to get something out of it. I need to hear the over. there you go. Like you said, that humanizes me, right? Uh, (laughs) The overarching concept. And then if it's like, man, I didn't grasp that, you know, I might be able to, I can slow it down and go back, but that very rarely happens now. I can make it through a whole book without. Um, So I actually upgraded to the like biggest membership they have where it's like three credits a month or whatever. And I just power through books on my commute. And I often find that I get to the end of my three books and I've got a week before my new credits hit and I'll buy more books. And <laughs> I probably listen to three or four books a month on Audible.
0: Good for you. Have you done a course on reading comprehension? I have
1: done a course on speed reading for physical books, but I don't know that I've done anything for comprehension on like audio. I didn't even know that existed. I'll tell you the speed reading one helped for sure. Cause I can also power through physical books much faster than I used to.
0: Okay, so I have tried to speed read myself. I don't know how good I am at it, but the biggest takeaways from what I learned were you read in screenshots, sort of. Uh-huh. Um, not It's it's not really linear. You just take little grabs because that's how your eyes work. And the other tip was to use your finger.
1: To- you know what's really crazy is the guy, and I don't do this because I, I, I would probably do this with textbooks, but I, I prefer to enjoy while I'm reading. So I actually... I've intentionally slowed down from what I learned on that, but I'm still probably 200 words a minute faster than I was before I started. But in the book or the course I took, he talks about using your finger, but not just going left to right. So he'll go left to right and then go down and right to left. And so he will read like one way back. And so he's going back and forth with his finger and reading lines on both swipes. And I got to the point where I could understand a sentence, even if I read it backwards across the page on the way back. And so I could read like, 700 words a minute, but it's, that's like almost work. It's not, it's not enjoyable. So I would do that on like a textbook, but when it's something I want to enjoy reading, I don't even mess with that, but it's a very strange <laughs> thing to learn. Like, wait, I'm reading backwards and I'm totally understanding it. That's crazy. That is crazy.
0: We talk a lot about mindset on this podcast. So I want to switch to mindset if that's all right with you. Of course. <laughs> what? is the first investment that members of the military should make?
1: Mm. You know, I'm a fan of our our thrift savings plan, the uh, the 401k. However, I think the first investment in anything, so outside of that, I think that's just an automated, you should put money in that because it'll grow while you're learning. But then I think the first investment that anyone should make is in themselves.
0: Mm. I think that's the answer I was looking for because I'm going to talk about personal finance and investing a little bit later. So yeah, I kind of expected you to say that. And one of the things that I'm curious about is if, have, have you found for you personally that military discipline has carried over into how you manage your personal finances?
1: Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, military discipline is often just, it sucks. Nobody cares. Um, but I mean, realistically, it, I think it totally does because you, can, you learn how to like just pull your emotions away from what you're doing. And even if it's not fun, you know it's the right thing to do. So you stick to it. And I think when you set a budget, it's often the same thing. It's not fun, but you just got to stick to your guns. And I think that kind of does transfer over.
0: The it sucks. Nobody cares. What, what did you mean by that?
1: <laughs> well, there's a lot of stuff you do in the military that's not fun. Uh, you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows, believe it or not. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but at the end of the day, like you, you very quickly learn in the military that nobody cares about you. You're whining, like, it's just no, okay, great, you're unhappy, get over it. Um, and I think that just kind of plays into the mindset of like dealing with difficult things. So the whole reason for that is if you can detach yourself from your emotions, you can deal with a whole lot of crap. Uh, and so if people just like you, you know, you're like, Oh man, it's cold yet. Yeah, nobody cares. Like, Oh, you're right. Okay. Like I get, well, I'll just stop. You, know, you eventually get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm cold, but I'm going to just shut my mouth and figure out how to deal with it. Um, and I think that transfers very well into the financial, you know, like, really want that Xbox? Like, okay, that Xbox. Yeah, but I really want that. Nobody cares what you want. Okay, fine. Like you can <laughs> kind of put yourself in that box, which you know, a lot of people say is not the way to do finance, right? Because it's like dieting. If you, if you go too strict for too long, you'll crack, but like, whatever, if you can deal with it, you can deal with it. Some people are, you know, like I talk to myself like an asshole. Um, and people always make fun of me because I'm like, they'll see like a reminder go off on my phone. And every morning at zero seven, my phone has a reminder that pops up and says, get skinny asshole. Your life will be less shitty. And (laughs) and people like, that's how you talk to yourself. I'm like, yeah. And like, it doesn't bother me at all. Like, that's what I grew up with is not necessarily like, I don't, I don't need to feel like, oh, yay, I need to get, you know, I need to go on a diet. Like, that's not the reality. The reality is like, hey, you're getting fat. Stop. You know, (laughs) uh, is that's the way that works for me. So I don't know that that's necessarily the best way to talk to yourself, but it it works for me. And I do the same thing with finances. Like, you know, instead of saying, you know, instead of being like, oh, hey, my goal this month is to save. $500, which I do that, but then I'll turn it around and be like, you know, I'll be talking to myself in line like, hey, dude, you do not need that Starbucks. You do not need that movie. You do not need whatever, like, I don't know. I I would say it transfers over, but maybe it's just because I'm a, a, a prick to myself, but.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that because something that I write about quite a bit on the blog is the differences between men and women. And men tend to respond to challenges, whereas women more, or I should say, better respond to praise. Right? So, one of the things I'm curious about is if you have, do you think you have a harder time following, or let's say, coming back to America after what you've experienced? And do you have a harder time being tolerant of other people? who aren't as tough minded or disciplined as you are, or, or maybe they allow trivial things to get to them real easily, like cold. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you, how do you manage that sort of thing?
1: I will say that the unfollow button on Facebook is my best friend. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, if you click on friend, people can see that you're not friends anymore. But if you click unfollow, they have no idea, but you will never see their BS on your Facebook page. Mm. And I have learned through the last few years that I have a lot of friends who complain about a lot of things they can't control. And when you try to point out like a different mentality, you're the bad guy. Or like we were talking earlier about political stuff, like some of that stuff, people post crazy stuff and you're like, hey man, uh, do you ever think about it like this way? And uh, and people just do not appreciate it. So I finally just started on following so I didn't see stuff. I try to be, I try to make myself as emotionally detached from decision-making as humanly possible. And people are just emotionally driven and emotionally charged through so much these days. Because I mean, you think about it, the media plays on, you know, anger and fear and everything. Everyone knows how to tweak your emotions and get them into gear. So like I tell people like, man, uh, we'll use this example, right? The American flag. We've all seen the rainbow flag version and people get mad. We've also all seen the black and white version with the blue stripe or the red stripe down the middle. And I will tell people like, hey, uh, here's two pictures, right? Here's a rainbow American flag and here's a blacked out one with a blue stripe. Does one of these make you angry and the other one's okay with you? They're like, yeah, well yeah, and I don't care which one makes you angry or which one you're okay with. If the answer is yes, then you have an emotionally biased point on this and you need to figure out how to turn that off because they're both go against US flag code. So if you're okay with one and you're not okay with the other, then it's an emotional issue. It's not an actual right and wrong issue. And I try to tell people, look, if you are in a discussion with someone or an argument with someone and you can't find one thing that you agree with on their side of the argument, then you need to step out of the argument because you're not thinking logically and you've got a problem. So even if I completely disagree with someone on something, if I can't find like one piece of the abortion issue or one piece of the gay rights issue or whatever, for the other point of view that I agree with, then I know I need to bow out of the conversation because I'm not doing anyone justice because I'm not in the right headspace to be talking. And that's not an easy thing to do once you get fired up. But if you can figure that piece out, like, So anyway, all of that craziness to say, yes, it drives me nuts when I see people whining about things and I'm like, dude, chill, like your life is not that bad.
0: Man, I love everything you just said there. And I had a conversation on Twitter that directly resembles what you're talking about. So somebody posted that the IMF confirms that trickle down economics is indeed a joke and I said, well, it's interesting the article doesn't mention whether the standard of living has indeed risen for low-income low folks. Since trickle-down economics is a political term, it's important that we read opposing views on important topics and then draw our own conclusions. Otherwise, we just risk confirmation bias. And mm-hmm. she said that she would love to read opposing views that proves trickle-down economics works. And did I have a link? And I thought, I, w- I was just so surprised that I was like, wow, it's so rare that somebody wants to read opposing views on this important topic. So I said, yeah, I would read Gosling, Ridley, Thomas Sowell, see where you differ with them, and then include the opposing view in your strong support. And so she said, yeah, I'll be happy to check them out, but it doesn't change the fundamental fact that the original article I posted um, said that trickle down economics literally started as a joke. And I said, well, it started as a joke for political purposes. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, originally, back when Calvin Coolidge was in the White House, he was in the White House right before Hoover. And he said, the object of taxation is to secure revenue. The problem is to find a rate at which will produce the largest returns. And the struggle to find that rate wasn't always politicized. It was just, how do we come up with the tax rate that's going to generate the most revenues? And then it didn't become politicized until Reagan. And that's, so trickle down economics is a political term, but I actually did have a conversation on Twitter with someone who was interested in learning all sides of an argument, and I was so impressed with that. It's very so, rare. yeah, so rare. Cool, so do you think it's easier for you to distinguish between what's in your control and out of control, and if so, is that something that you got from the from the military, or was it maybe just strengthened through your experience in the military?
1: I'm sure the military has something to do with that, because you just kind of quickly learn in the military, like okay, well, I can't control that we got said got told to be there at zero five. So I'm just going to be there at zero five and stop complaining about it. And, and so I think that probably does kind of start out there. But then there's a lot of mindset books, right? And there's just a lot of people who the, what's the quote, like focus on what you can control. And not. I forget, there's an actual what's the uh, like, Lord grant me to is, the, uh, is it? Serenity uh, prayer? Yeah, that one. That's what I'm trying to get to uh, the strength to that serenity prayer like that viewpoint on life is, is awesome. And I I think it's becoming kind of rare, but it's uh, a very easy way to help you live a less stressful life.
0: Yes. Oh, I totally agree. I went through through some tough times as a kid and it so helped to illustrate for me the difference right away. Like, oh, I can't control that. And it's from something that I went through that I couldn't control as a kid that really affected my life. So um, one thing I want to know is if sorry, I keep going back to your military experience because it's it's fascinating to me, but is there anything that you learned about human nature that other people might be slow to learn? And and the reason I ask is because you see people in stressful situations, but you also have, I would think, a lot of time in solitude, or or at least time to think when you're in the military. Am I am I right in saying that? Yeah.
1: I, I would say so. There's I mean, yeah, because we do do guard duty no matter where we end up. We call it fire watch, but we'll do, you know, depending on where you are, one hour, four hour, 12 hour shifts of guard duty where you're, I mean, theoretically, you could find yourself totally alone on a outpost overlooking, you know, contested areas and just hanging out up there on your own for one hour, four hours, whatever. Uh, And so you definitely get some time alone in your thoughts through that and through different I mean, you're always rotating through firewatch in in convoys when you're paused, you know, two or three people might be sleeping and the guys up in the gun turret wide awake uh, and you rotate through that position. So, man, as far as human nature, that's a deep question. I almost feel like I need to think about that more uh, because I'm sure there is something in there. Um, I mean, obviously I'd I'd say, you know, the normal stuff, like humans are inherently selfish, whether they like to agree, like to think so or not. Uh, but at the same time like man there's some there's got to be something really deep in there that I could unpack if i if I think about it but uh, and I
0: don't know how about a different question what are the similarities between Afghans and Americans
1: hmm that's good uh, I would like to say that it's the fact that we will come together to help each other out. They're very, uh, they, they work together very well in a community through their little villages. And I think that, you know, when you see people struggle through poverty or rough times, they come together and help each other out. I think that's something that America is good at when it, when it comes to it. I, I would actually, I, I joke, but you know, it's kind of unfortunate that we haven't had a tragedy or a, a depression because I think that might bring the nation back together a little bit. Uh, I I don't need to go on record saying I want us to go through a depression, but you know what I mean? Um, so I think like that piece, like they've gone through some pretty rough times and they're very close knit because of it in their little communities.
0: I believe going back to Reagan, I think he was the one who said that we would come together if we were attacked by another planet, (laughs) but that might be what it would take. Since we're asking deep, deeper questions, this is sort of a macro question, but do you have a Why?
1: No, absolutely not. No. Um, (laughs) yeah. You know, at this point in my life, if you look at my vision board, I would say my, my why is to spend more time with my family, which is fairly cliche, but I made the mistake of taking 25 days off when I moved from Hawaii to California for my next duty station. And I say mistake because I spent 25 days just hanging out on the farm, hanging out with my kids, like driving four wheelers around on a farm, doing, you know, whatever I wanted. And I was like, man, I need to get out of the military. Like I need to be able to control my schedule and do my own thing. This is, this is the greatest thing ever. Just being able to like jump on a four wheeler and go work cows with my little two-year-old loving it. Um, It's just fun. And so I, I, my why is to be able to make that my life, to be able to control my schedule enough that I can take the time to go do those things rather than have to go to work.
0: I love that. And yeah, that's why you're pursuing financial independence. I imagine one of the the biggest benefits that I'm not, I've not even experienced yet, but I'm looking forward to is I think fire gives you a chance to be super dad, right? You'll be able to spend more time with your kid than your dad ever spent with you, presumably. And that's what I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, that's the goal. Very good. So let's talk about Investing and personal finance, and I probably should say, since I referenced Bigger Pockets earlier, which episode is yours? Does it have a number?
1: It is two eighty one, and I was actually I'm the back end of it. I'm a, it's a newbie episode. They have to you have to have done ten deals to be on the podcast. And uh, Brandon Turner and I were talking, and he's like, "Dude, I want to get you on the podcast." I was like, "I don't have the ten deal minimum. I have fifty three doors at the time, but I don't have the ten deal minimum." And he was like. Yeah, well, we're doing a newbie episode next week. We'll get you on there. So I, I did the—I was the the guy on the backside of the newbie episode, but uh, I—I'll be on the show again, I'm sure, at some point for a full episode. But uh, yeah. So anyway, so two eighty one.
0: Cool. Would you say that you have a high aptitude for risk taking?
1: Oh yeah, uh, probably <laughs> too high. So one of the greatest benefits about the military, I tell people all the time, is like your life is covered, right? So you join the military and you all of a sudden you have, you either live in the barracks or you have a housing allowance. You either eat at the chow hall or you get a food stipend and like almost all your expenses are covered, right? Like all the things that you need for survival, food, shelter, whatever, that is covered no matter what. Like you're not gonna just wake up one day and not get a housing allowance or you're not gonna wake up one day and they'll be like, oh, hey, you're single, get out of the barracks, go figure it out on your own. Like you've got a place to live. And if it's not the barracks or base housing, you have the housing allowance and you can go live off base. So that affords investors the opportunity to be risky because if everything else fails, you still have food and shelter. So it's not like you're gonna risk, you know, unless you get yourself kicked out of the military, you're not at a risk for... If I go bankrupt, I'm still covered. If I lose hundred thousand dollars in this deal, I'm still covered. And that's probably the wrong mentality for a lot of people in a lot of ways. Like if you aren't smart, when you are taking those risks? You might end up in that bad situation. But for me, it's given me the okay to just say, yeah, okay, this is scary, but who cares? Because what's the worst that happens? Well, the worst that happens is I lose money. The worst that happens is not that I end up on the street. So, why not take the risk? I'm young enough. If I lose everything right now at 29 years old, I've got time, right? Like if I just like lose absolutely everything, I have time to figure it out. So time is on my side and I have the ability to take that risk because right now, like I plan on going to the reserves in two years, but I'm still active duty. So if I totally lost everything next year, I can re-enlist, stay active duty and I still have a job and I'm still taken care of. So it's just, it's allowed me to, take more risk because the
0: stability is there in case something goes wrong. I like everything that you just said there. I, I, I too think that people should take a more calculated risk when they have safety nets, such as what you're talking about, or when they have a rising income when they're in their 20s. And yeah, you have plenty of time to make it up. So start some businesses, take less than 10% of your net worth and take some chances. I think that fear is something that we've inherited from the age of beasts back when the, the tiger could have found us on the savanna, but we're not there anymore. I mean, we have so, nobody's going to let you starve nowadays. So take more calculated risk. The pesky neocortex getting in the way. Yeah, there you go. The
1: Cross grain, or whatever they call it. Yeah, the fight or flight mechanism. Like yeah, just shortcut that, you'll be amazed at what you can accomplish.
0: Yeah, our palms still get sweaty so we don't taste so good to the bear. The bear's not going to eat us now. We have shelter <laughs> and warmth and we'll be fine. Um, I heard you talk about a flip where you spent $12,000. Tell me about that.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, so I am – well, it's it should be done this week. Uh so I bought this place for 12 grand and I put about 50,000 into it to renovate it. It should be worth about 95. But yeah, I was in Missouri. I was home. I was at a networking thing. I was talking to some of my wholesaler buddies and I was like, yeah, man, you know, you're like my favorite, my favorite wholesaler in town. Your website's the greatest, this, that, and the other. He's like, oh, great. Hey, I just got this property under contract. You want to look at it? And I was like, okay, sure. You know, what are you asking? He was like, uh, 11, nine. I'm like, oh, shoot all right, yeah, let's go look at it. And it was, it was in terrible shape. It was like a two one nine hundred 900 square feet from like 1904 that, you know, is just old and decrepit. But I was like, Hey, the attic up here is huge. Like this is, and I was like, wait a minute, this isn't an attic. This is an unfinished bedroom. They just didn't realize it. And, uh, I brought my contractor in and he was like, Oh yeah, dude, we got to do the roof anyway. We can easily throw a room up here. Um, so it was a two, one, 900 square feet. When, it, when we go on market, it'll be a three, one and a half with 1600 square feet. And, uh, it should be worth about 95, but I'll be about 62 all in. So that's actually my first solo flip. And the only time I've seen that property is when I walked through with the wholesaler. Um, so, you know, a lot of systems and stuff in place to try to make that happen, but, uh, it's been fun. Very cool. And is this your first flip or you've done several? I've partnered on some out in Hawaii and with other people, but this is my first one that has been 100% my money and my effort. Very cool. Obviously I'm not swinging a hammer, but you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And you're the only one doing it. You're the sole buyer.
1: Yep. 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 Me and the wifey are all in on it with no. So this will be the first one that I get to put on my resume as like, Hey, yeah, I've done a flip in Missouri as opposed to like, i've been partnered
0: with people who did a flip in Hawaii so you all in you were you're at sixty five thousand is that cash that you came up with, or did you use money from the bank uh,
1: majority cash some personal loan uh, I realized it wasn't enough cash for a hard money lender. most of them won't touch anything under seventy five thousand lending, mm-hmm. and the bank won't clearly won't, obviously won't touch this property. Uh, So it's just not in a condition where a bank is going to lend on it or it wasn't. And so I was like, man, I've got most of the money to do this. I just went into a lending tree and pulled out a small personal loan to do the rest of it, which honestly, I only think I'm only paying like eight and a half percent, nine percent. So it's really not that bad either, considering that, you know, it'll be a 10 or $20,000 profit net when we're done.
0: So net after Closing costs and, and closing and costs taxes. and everything okay. else. Yeah. Cool. What are you going to do with that ten to twenty?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I had debated. It's one of two things. It's if if I have a property lined up that looks really good, I'll probably just roll it into the next deal. Uh, if there's not a property immediately, you know, within a week or two of looking, that is the right fit, then I will dump it into my credit card because I. racked up a substantial amount of credit card debt paying on uh legal bills for uh well i guess without getting into too much because i can't really get into the weeds i'm in a a big lawsuit right now i guess almost a hundred thousand right now tied up in a deal that did not go so hot and i'm trying to get my money back because there were some things in the contract that weren't upheld and i'm trying to say like hey dude um no, that's not how this works. I want my, I want my down payment back because it was a seller financing, like a lease option deal. And, uh, it just, yeah, it just did not end well. So uh, so I've racked up a large amount of undesired credit card debt on legal bills. And even though I will get all of that back when we win the lawsuit, I will probably just pay that down so that I don't pay interest on it while I'm waiting to get my money back. Unless there's another deal, because ultimately at the end of the day, even a 10% interest on a credit card or 12% or whatever I'm paying, I can get a better return if I flip the right house. So,
0: and did you have to put this on a credit card because most of your assets are tied up in the TSP that you mentioned earlier?
1: No, I could pull out of the TSP if I wanted to. I could, I could pull money from that to do the, to pay on this. I just chose to leave my money earning interest in the TSP rather than to take a loan out of it. Um, But because I have so much capital tied up in, the lawsuit, I just went with the credit card rather than because it was available. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'll just swipe this, whatever. Um, I have a pretty large uh, limit on it, so I'm not really at a risk for going overboard. And I know the money will come back. So I just left all my money in the investment accounts and used the credit card rather than uh, rather than pulling money out of investment accounts. Gotcha.
0: Do you also do buy and holds or are you just strictly flips? No, I'm primarily a buy and hold guy. A
1: flip is more or less something that was a product of me needing to raise capital back up because I lost a lot. Uh so I have the the one that we're in the lawsuit over, that was 40 units. Um but I have a 10 unit, a duplex, a triplex. So we have 13 long-term rental units right now and then that big 40 unit that went south. So uh at one point I had 53, but <clears throat> I have 40 or have 13 right now I'm negotiating a seller finance 12 unit deal my property manager is walking through it tomorrow and that one should be uh it's some some great terms assuming the property is what he says it is and then uh the flip is really just my way of making my money build capital again while I'm waiting on getting my capital back
0: okay did they ask you on bigger pockets how much cash flow you had from your properties they did not. Hmm. Are you primarily investing for appreciation or cash flow or both? Or how do you see no, that? Um, uh, th- I think there'd
1: be a little bit of appreciation, but I'm in the Midwest. So it's a very low appreciation market, a very, very much a cash flow market. So uh, to answer your question, I guess, because I would imagine you are leading towards I'm curious. asking. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, I have a single family home that was our residence that we rent out. So it is probably, probably nets about 250 a month right now. Um, it The mortgage on it's about 700 and rent is currently 1250, which is not a huge spread, but it's a very newly renovated property. So the maintenance and capital expenditures on it is like nothing. Um, I mean, the CapEx obviously is always there, but the maintenance on it, I mean, I think I've spent like knock on wood. Uh I think we've spent like 110 dollars on maintenance last year. So, uh not very bad. Um so I I still save a large chunk, but I probably averaged like right at 250 in cash flow on that last year. My duplex averages about 310, 315 in cash flow a month, mm. and my 10 unit, my 10 unit is a little crazy. Um so I bought this thing super over leveraged, right? I did seller financing, this, and the other, I was, I I brought 4.9% down to the closing table. And so I only put 10,000 bucks down on it, uh, 10,900. And I've since refinanced last week and pulled 14,000 out. So I got my whole down payment back, dropped the payment $200 a month. And I have 62,000 in equity that I've built over the last 18 months. So that was all wonderful, right? So that thing's a win in that regard. But it, it really fluctuates a lot more than my other properties just because it's kind of a, like a lower C class property and I'm on the hook for utilities. So we've been able to do rubs to get rid of that. Um, it goes anywhere from 800 to 1200 a month in cash flow. Although now it'll probably be a thousand to 1400 with the $200 less in monthly payments, um, which is great. I mean, that's a hundred percent cash on cash return, but it's just funny to because it really does like one month will be like, <coughs> Like 400 in cash flow, and I'll be like, "Oh my goodness, what happened?" And then the next month will be like 2,000 in cash flow, and I'm like, "Oh," because it just seems like that property is just a weird. Well, I'll give you the perfect example. In the last year, I had someone moving out to take out a three thousand dollars worth of roofing damage by hitting a roof with the top of their U-Haul, like they just scraped through, the, scraped down the side of the gutter, and ripped off like a corner of my roof. Is that something you budget for? No, generally, generally not expecting someone to run into your building with a Mm. U-Haul. So that was kind of a strange expense. It took like seven months to get insurance to cover it. Uh, And then just two weeks ago when rent was due, my property went in, my property manager didn't get rent from someone who was very reliable. So they went to the house or the, the building to check on them. And I had someone dead in my apartment for two weeks. So now I have $4,500 $4,500 worth of environmental cleaning fees and oh. carpet replacement and flooring replacement to get this unit rented. So I was like, man, this, this guy, like his going away present was that he was going to take every penny of rent he's paid me over the last year away from me. Thanks. <laughs> because <Like, laughs> he was only renting for, you know, this is Missouri. So he was probably at like four seventy-five a month because he was a little bit under market value or whatever, market rent. And I'm like, man, over the course of the year, that's $6,000 or 5,500 or whatever. And he's going to cost me almost that much in getting the unit turned over for the next guy. So it's kind of one of those crazy things where it just fluctuates. It's usually around 1,200 a month, a thousand a month, but but man, this next month, is going to be like, well, there goes a month's worth of income. So mm. it's uh Kind of a crazy property, but it's been fun. It's uh, I've learned a lot about evictions and stuff, but it's still been profitable every month.
0: So your flip was in Missouri, and yes. you're in San Diego. Do you advocate for long distance investing, real estate investing? I think that depends on
1: your market. You know, if I if I was in a market that cash flowed really well and I I liked the the market, I would absolutely invest locally. Um, San Diego is not a bad market to invest in. But there's some tenant rules that I'm not a fan of, and I wasn't going to live here very long. And I really just did not want to deal with a property in California from long distance. So I don't want to own something here while I'm living in Missouri just because, well, for one, they've got rent control now. Uh, The tenant laws, it's so tenant friendly in California. I mean, it's a nightmare to go through an eviction process here. And I just didn't really want to deal with all that. Uh, so I just continued pumping my money into Missouri, where it's very landlord friendly, it's it's cost effective, and it's I have a decent team. Um, so I advocate for finding a market that works, whether that's locally or not, and then just going for it. And you know, so many people get wrapped up in picking a market. I just tell them like narrow it down to five, and then put them all on the wall and throw a dart at it. Like if you got it down to five markets in the U.S., like that's five markets out of like what. Several hundred thousand potential places you could invest or however many cities there are in the U.S. So you narrowed it down to five. They're all good choices pick one and go for it It really doesn't matter where you invest. It just matters that you build a good team and have a good strategy.
0: I like that I'm gonna ask you some fun quick questions. Um, Is it true that there are no atheists in foxholes?
1: Hmm, I would say yes and that, that stems from, you know, when you're about to die, everybody becomes a praying man. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you see it a lot at, at recruit training, like at boot camp, people people go to church. It's very rare that people do not go to church because it's an out. It's a way to get away from, you know, the craziness of the squad bay and the drill instructor. So almost everybody finds a religious service to go to. And it's it's very similar in the military. Like, oh, man, like I can go to this chapel and just relax or I can go talk to chaps and like relax. And I don't think that's the right reason or necessarily the reason but yeah it's definitely definitely i would say true i have yet everybody becomes much more religious when they're faced with dying
0: Mm. have you ever met anyone in the military who you suspected had communist sympathies Mm. i
1: i would i I don't think so however like i said you know we don't talk politics much at work uh but i you know you'd be surprised what What people do believe. Um, I don't know that I would use those words to describe it, but I mean, there's people who believe all different walks of life. I would say generally that it's kind of a capitalistic mentality, but uh, I don't know that it's all that way.
0: Mm. What book has taught you the most with regard to personal finance and or real estate?
1: Mm. Man, so the one that started it all was obviously rich dad, poor dad, but, uh, I, I have really liked the book on long distance real estate investing from, uh, David green, because I think that's played into what I'm already doing. And I think I took a lot of tactics that he uses and was able to systemize what I was a real estate investor. Cause I was doing the long distance thing. Um, so I would say that one, and then for personal finance, and there's so many good ones out there. The the simple path to wealth is a good one. The I like the book Life and Air. That's a that's a unique one that not a lot of people mention. But Life and Air is basically like a different perspective on life, and it talks about personal finance, but it talks about it from a standpoint of how to make your life enjoyable as you're going through life, rather than how to like live your life hunting more cash and more success, only to find that you got you're 60 now and you don't have either. Um, so it's a different book, but I like it a lot.
0: We talked a lot about personal development on the episode of Bigger Pockets that I was on. And Brandon Turner actually mentioned that book as being one of his favorites, Life and Air, And I had never heard of it. I think he's the one who turned me on to it. That's okay. And David Green is sharp as a tack, man. I was, he's, he's something. Yeah. I need to read his book, but you, you're saying it's, do you know the name of it? It's focused on long distance real estate investment. It's literally called the book on long distance. Real okay.
1: Your pockets as a way of titling things like, Oh, that's what this is about. <laughs> nice. So uh, do you have a favorite fire blog? Ooh, you know, I, I like the military dollar. Uh, I, I think partially because I, in the military wallet, they're both very good uh, financial blogs and fire blogs. Uh, but I think I like them because they're, military oriented um I am also a big fan of I like I'm gonna mess up his name Ramit Sethi or whatever the I will teach you to be rich yeah Uh, I like his mentality on things and then obviously I'm a fan of Pat Flynn uh, from very many different perspectives he's taught like I watch his stuff when I was trying to learn how to do a podcast and stuff uh he and he's the smart passive income
0: guy very cool. If anyone listening would like a copy of Ramit Sethi's book, I will teach you to be rich. I will send you a copy if you will let us know, either me or David, in the comments of the show notes for this episode, I will send you a copy. I don't know about you, David, but I picked up a couple of extras. He was the keynote at the FinCon show this year. So I have yeah. a, a few of them stacked up at my home and I need to give them away. So if anybody wants to comment on the, in the show notes, um, let us know what you think of the episode and I will send you a copy of that book. By what age do you hope to be financially independent?
1: Uh, Let's see. I'm 29 now. So let's say 30. No, uh, I, I think realistically it's my five-year goal. So I would say 34 would be, uh, I want to have replaced all my income. So my goal is to have replaced the majority of my income by the time I exit the service in two years. And then I will hopefully have paid off the rest of my debt too. Um, and then, well, except for, you know, the good debt. Uh, and then, I have three years, four, well, really four years of GI Bill that I can use where I can be getting paid to go to college. And so my goal is to have built up enough residual income by that point. So by like 34 years old, 35 years old, that I will be able to not only be financially independent, but continue to grow the portfolio while being financially independent. So it would not take a whole lot for me to Shoot, I could get out of the military right now with no residual income. And if my wife continues her job, we'd be financially free because she loves her job and wants to keep doing it regardless. And that's enough for us to live on in Missouri. Uh, What does she do? She's just a high school counselor. Okay. She's, she just, I don't know. She likes, she likes doing it. She has no desire. It seems like to stop doing it. Uh, Even when I'm like, we could be free and do this. She's like, yeah, (laughs) I I enjoy it. I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, So I could, we could live off that but we can't live off that and build the portfolio. So I need to make enough that we can use my income to continue building the portfolio while we're mooching off her existence for finances. Sure. And then hopefully by 35, we'll be at a point where we
0: don't need her income at all. That's a great plan. So the title of your blog is From from Military to Millionaire, correct? Correct. At what age do you think that you will be a millionaire?
1: Hmm. That's a great question, and I would think that it'll be right around thirty-three or thirty-four mm-hmm. uh, net worth. I'm, I mean, I don't talk that too much. I'm about a third of the way there, and okay. I've been investing for four years. But it, it, you'll, you know, most people find that that increases faster as you go along. So I assume that if it took me four years to build three hundred k in net worth, that it'll probably take me, you know, the next four years to take to double that or to to triple that um, to make another six hundred. Uh, and I think part of that is just, if I can get my, if I can get my capital back, that's sitting, you know, in that tangled up in that mess, theoretically, that deal would have replaced my income, but, uh, now it's just taxing my income. So <laughs> it happens. So does the loser pay
0: all attorney fees in that case?
1: Correct. Okay. And given that there were some very black and white things that didn't happen, I, I'm fairly confident that I'll be okay.
0: If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? Ooh,
1: <sighs> that's a great question. I think I would take, I'm trying to think of the best answer for this. So a million dollars. I would probably take half of it and put it away for a rainy day. And I don't mean savings account. I mean, I would probably put like a 100,000 in each of my kids, uh, like education plans, right? So that they would, I would know that like, hey, no matter what happens, like they are funded. Um, although I would be, very, it would still be a rough debate between if I wanted to try to do like 529, like an education plan, or if I wanted to just buy a hundred thousand dollars down worth of real estate investments and let that pay for their college, which is the Brandon Turner thing that I kind of like what he did with that. where he bought a, bought a house and said, this is Rosie's house. Um, <clears throat> so I think I would probably buy each of them a property, maybe like a $200,000 down or $200,000 rental with 50% down, just so it'd be a really simple cash flowing property. Just put all the money back into an account. And then when they turn 18, you know, like do a, do an 18 year, uh, or 15 year mortgage or whatever. So it's paid off. And I can say, here's your property. Here's what it's worth. Here's what it makes every month. You can either take the money it makes every month and use that, or you can sell it and pay for college, whatever, however you want to do it. But that's your college. And then I would take the other (laughs) 800,000, 300 of that would probably go into my like world ending reserves slash uh, index funds where it's just going to kind of grow steadily so that that way I always have that ability to take a lot of risk because I have an account in the back for stability once I exit the military. And then the other 500,000 of that, I would absolutely just go crazy with it would be, (laughs) you know, I would probably dump, It'd be very tempting to do a lot of different things, but what I would probably do is I would probably take there's a couple of syndicators that I really like there's very few syndicators that I'm like, yep, I would invest with him no matter what uh, but there's a couple of them and I would probably take a hundred thousand and dump it into one or one or two of those uh, you know so I'd probably put two hundred thousand into syndications as passive investments where I'm able to just say, here you go, long game, take my money into this multifamily and we'll, we'll get it back in five, 10 years. Uh, and then the other 300,000 I would take and personally invest in my local market. Uh, so by doing that, I've got you know syndication money in two or three different markets with people that I trust in, in the long game uh, holding units. I've got my kid's college paid for, I have a oh shit fund saved up. And then I've got $300,000 that I can just buy Uh, more buy and holds in my area, and I can buy them. Most of what I've bought so far has been highly seller-financed and highly leveraged, so I can buy it with a lot more money down and have it be more stable investments for the long term.
0: I've asked that question to just about every guest that I've had on the podcast, and I have not had someone go into so much detail and put so much thought into what they would do with a million dollars. And I think... I'm sure you've heard that someone who is a good steward of their money is likely to get a lot more. So just based on the, the answer to that question, I think that you will probably end up with a million dollars a lot sooner than you expect. Uh, fingers crossed.
1: If you want to throw <laughs> some at me, you know we'll see if I was. No, we'll see if I was telling the truth.
0: go to, to Vegas. Does Brandon have maybe a blog article or, A podcast maybe a solo podcast where he talks about that in detail about how to go about doing it
1: Uh, you know I'll uh, I don't I'll shoot him a text and see I know he said it a couple times Um, I know he said it on some of the podcasts I don't know specifically he might have done a video on it or a blog post on it Um, Mm. but I I can shoot him a text and ask where he told that story but he basically for those of you who don't know he bought a I think it was a fourplex right like the year she was born he bought it's a triplex or a fourplex up in his market in Washington and he financed it i want to say he got just a straight up 18 year financing so it'll be paid off right when she's ready to go to school and it's it cash flows and that money goes into an account and i think i think what he was i, I need to double check this but i think he was saying he's going to keep the cash flow until he's paid back his original down payment on it and mm-hmm. then it'll all go into an account for her and then obviously when she's 18, she'll have this cash flowing asset that's free and clear, and she'll be able to determine from there what she's going to do with it. And he plans that. on doing the same thing. Uh, they're, they're pregnant right now. So I know he plans on doing the same thing, I believe, with the second. So, which is just Very a cool, cool strategy. Also, I just want to throw this out there because I say it all the time, and you just brought up a point. Um, marrying, marriage. That is the biggest financial mistake that nobody talks about. So I'm just going to leave that bomb there and we can (laughs) uh, unpack that somewhere else. But man, it is amazing how many people tank their finances with the wrong person. And I see it all the time in the military. Like, but we're in love. Okay, maybe, but she blows all your money and has $200,000 in debt. Yeah, but we're in love. Okay, I got that. Um, What is she doing to help you get out of this debt? oh, nothing. She stays at home and doesn't do anything. Okay. Like nothing wrong with stay at home, but uh, you got to treat your marriage like a business at some point too.
0: Can you imagine if the husband wanted to start coaching, being coached to fire through real estate investing and the coach asked about how much you're spending every month and the husband goes to his wife and says, honey, we need to know how much we're spending every month. And she didn't want to share that information, and yeah. the excuse was that it was unfair to the kids to pursue fire. <laughs> like what? It's yeah. nuts.
1: Yeah. So yeah, uh, it's to <laughs> say it's unfair to the kids what you're doing
0: with what could
1: be used to. But anyway. Yeah.
0: Um, Ramit Sethi talked about Vanguard Target Funds, and that's what he uses. And so Brandon Turner's plan is like real estate target funds. Cause you said it's 18 years, right? Yep. Very good. I just have two more questions for you. What are you most grateful for?
1: Mm. Wow. Uh, you'd think I'd have a great answer for that off the top of my head, but there's a lot. It's like it's that old, because there is a too lot many. Yeah. It's like too many decisions. Just narrow it down to two for me and I'll make a choice. But, um, Man, I, you know, I, I guess I'm just grateful that I've had a very purpose-filled life so far. And I'm grateful that I've been able to build up this community to start creating another purpose for myself so that when I get out of the service, I'll still have that sense of purpose.
0: That's a great answer. Well, dude, your YouTube channel is on fire. I know you have over a thousand subscribers and just monetized. How can people find that YouTube channel and connect with you online if they want to do that?
1: Yeah, it's it's growing consistently. So basically, everywhere on the internet, I am found under either military millionaire or from military to millionaire. So uh, the blog is from military to millionaire dot com, and it has all of those other links on it. Um, And then the YouTube channel and podcast is all under the same name, so. Excellent.
0: Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for your service to our country. I really enjoyed this chat, David.
1: Thanks, brother. It's been fun. Thanks for having me on.
0: Likewise. Folks, thank you for listening. I never take it lightly that you're tuning in. It means the world to me. As long as Lady O and I are in Thailand, we'll be sending a unique gift to listeners who leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The reason we do that is because, well, one, she enjoys shopping at the Night Bazaar here. And we also like sending mail because we know how good it feels to receive something in the mail. So the more reviews that there are on Apple Podcasts, the easier it is for people to find the podcast, thereby helping us to extend our impact and influence on those wishing to improve their lives even in some small way. I can be found at man underscore overseas on both Instagram and Twitter. Thank you, folks.